0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Originally airing on SiriusXM.
1: McCard carrying basing at this point. Ben Alamar, director of sports analytics at
2: ESPN. Just
0: to next a big you'd Be like, he's just one of us, man.
2: <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues.
0: This is Wharton Moneyballs post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio Sirius XM Channel 132 every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show.
2: You know, you may notice there's just Adi and me today. I don't say just. There just, is just, just us in the studio. Just us today. But that means, of course, there's more time for you, the callers. So if you want to join the conversation, call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer Matt Datz at businessradio at siriusxm com. We're also a great follow on Twitter at WMoneyball. W Moneyball. I've been tweeting actually. Ex- matter of fact, have you been I've noticed? If you did a plot of time tweets of the per, show tweets per tweets per, 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 let's say per week, week <laughs> or per week, my tweeting is going way up because just you know more observations, and I want to share things with our fans.
1: Yeah. So, what's the word for collections of tweets? Uh, tweetage.
2: I think it's still just tweets. <laughs> tweets I think it's just okay. lots of tweets. <laughs> All right. But either way, again, if you want to join the conversation with Adi and me this morning, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. So, Adi, how are you today? I'm t- I'm terrific. There's so
1: much going on. You you uh, talk about your, your three favorite activities. We have lots to talk about. You know we could talk about hot dogs unharassed by, by our colleagues. We could talk about the Yankees un- unharassed by Red Sox fans. Well, we're going to do the <laughs> latter. I'm not sure we're going to do the
2: former. But I will say again, even just Adi's joke about talking about hot dogs, which Cade Massey hates when when he we does, talk about he it, does. I will you say don't see again, it. my conversation about hot dogs. Just to be clear, and that's the last time I'm going to talk about this. Was about exceedances, exceedances and no records, kidding. and how do you tell when someone is doing really great? As a matter of fact, there is something going on in baseball, a topic we love. There was, a I don't want to call it a milestone because you can create fake milestones in baseball all the time. But there was a player in baseball that just got to. Well, you know who? Was, when I tell you the stat, got to six hundred and fifty home runs, three, over three thousand hits. Of course, that's Albert Pujols. Where do you put him? We've never actually talked that much about Pujols. I mean, at some point... I think, he, I, I think he has he, to be top 10. I think
1: he's top 10. I think he's a top tier Hall of Famer. I mean, we talk about this. You, It's your the, the Bradlow three-tier Hall of Fame. He's remarkable. One of the things we don't remember the pool of his first 10 years so clearly, because he's been, the last five have been so feeble,
2: at least relative to what he was before. And when, by the way, when you say feeble, this just shows you he's still probably an above average player. Sure, He's got 20, he's probably going to hit. Close to twenty-five to thirty home runs and right. driving eighty RBIs. And by the way, that's the feeble. That's the Albert feeble Poulos. Albert
1: Poulos. But the the non-feeble Albert Poulos was a three forty three fifty hitter, batting average four twenty four fifty OBP, forty five home runs, hundred and thirty RBIs in that range. This was just a monster. I mean, he was uh, he was. Uh, he didn't have the, the the speed and the fielding prowess of a guy like Mike Trout, but he was every bit the the the, the hitter, I mean, if
2: not better. I think he's thirty eight right now. You do yeah. the math. Hank Aaron played till he's forty four. If a diminished Mike uh, uh, Albert Pujols decided to play till he's forty four, I think he's got three more years. Even still, he's got three more years. But let's say he would have played till forty four. He, I think we both believe. I don't know if he'd get to seven sixty two, but he'd definitely get up get to seven hundred. In six years, he can hit 50 more sure, home runs. Sure, sure. He, uh, the only not, question is, not, will he, anyone let him play? Okay, no, no. I said, yeah, if he were right. allowed to play, mm-hmm. he wouldn't... I don't know that he'd get to 4,000 hits. He's in the 3,100s, but he'd be... Right. He, he would certainly have Hank Aaron-ish numbers, which is, he may actually break... The, he would almost certainly break the record for the most RBIs in a career, because he's over 2,000 already. He's right. at 2,100. So he would end up probably third in home runs, first in RBIs, and maybe third or fourth in hits. That's right.
1: But that's assuming a, an amazingly long career, even at thirty, he's looking like he's at the end. The the issue is interesting. I think we understand this better now. The The position of first base is actually a defensively somewhat important position. And a good first baseman, a good fielding first baseman actually adds value. And I think in a short amount of time, if he stays in the National League, it's hard to imagine – uh, he's going to start part. because he just he's going to lose his ability to have any range at first base uh, scoops and, and things that are required uh, a little bit of agility to get to, to balls that are off the bag you see when you see a tremendously good fielding first baseman uh, it, 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 you, you realize remember, the value the, but
2: remember by the way he's on the Angels now that's right so he's in the AL oh he's in the AL now AL. Oh, of course, but, right. but I also want to point out something else so thank, this is why well, we they have, have Otani I know of, but this is why we have a producer thank you Matt Datz for this interesting stat I would have guessed he's much higher than this so his all time warp by the way which is phenomenal is a hundred point two yes well that makes sense but but and he's 30 he just turned 39 he's 31st all time i would have guessed higher no you,
1: you that's because you have no feel for the inadequacies of war
2: oh okay well then go. just give me an example yeah. here's a player where you would agree you and i would agree maybe for his position he's an all-time tier for joe morgan has an all-time war of 100.6. Yeah, that makes... I'm not saying that Joe Morgan wasn't a great player, but... He's not Albert
1: Poole. No, because what they do is they they have a position adjustment, and essentially, if you're if you're able to produce those kind of numbers while at first base, they don't think of that as very sensational in any in any serious way. I mean, obviously, it's way way a bit more valuable than a, a replacement, but it's not like what a second baseman does. Well, that's the, why. That's Here's why, an example. I love it yeah. when
2: uh, so now Matt's putting all kinds of people up on the screen. Here's another good one. Given we're sitting in here in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Mike Schmidt, a career war of 106.8. Third base. But I know. There he goes. I just want to say again, and I want to move on to more modern topics, but I will say the following Mike Schmidt was a great Hall of Famer. He's not Albert mu- He's no, Not Albert, not Albert Pujols. Pujols at the
1: plate. What you need to put up those kind of war numbers at first base is a lot more production than what you need at another position. The only other position is comparable is worse is DH. They, they really hammer DHs in terms of war. Uh, it's, All right, it's, we got the, it, Matt. It's the way they do Frank, it. He
2: puts up somebody else. Another great Hall of Famer, by the way. I mean, one of my favorites, because he won the MVP in both leagues, first African-American manager in baseball, Frank Robinson. All-time war of 107.3. Now, again... Frank Robinson, 586, I think, home runs. Again, MVP in both leagues. Great player. Still not Albert Pujols right. at the plate. Not that Frank Robinson, I'm not denigrating Frank Robinson. First-tier Hall of Famer, great player, but still not first-tier. All right, all right, Matt, I get it. This is the last one Matt's going to put up here. Ricky Henderson, 111.2. Now, there would be an interesting question. Who do you think will transition to modern baseball, but... Who do you think had a greater impact on the game of baseball, Ricky Henderson or Albert Pujols? Uh,
1: well, you know, we, we watched Henderson close up all those years with the Yankees. All-time
2: so, stolen base All-time stolen.
1: And, and a shaker. I mean, one of the things is that it's interesting. One of the things that, they, that, that modern analytics have yet to sort of tackle, not to say that they got it wrong, is what the stolen base can do to the equilibrium of the game, the rhythm of the pitchers, the ability to score runs. I, and I keep going back to the Billy Martin stories. This is a guy, Martin, and he would he would use the stolen base and the bunt and all these kind of just raggedy our, plays.
2: Honestly, just for our listeners here in Moneyball, of course, Adi and I know he was the Yankees manager during, let's call it, the 70s heyday of the Yankees. On and off. And, but, On and off.
1: But also he was the manager of the A's and he was the manager of the Tigers and he was the manager, I think, another, maybe, maybe it was Minnesota. But what he was able to, each team he was, he would take from either last place in some cases to competitive. And he did this with every team. And the the Ricky Henderson kind of style of play, which was that which is what Martin harnessed and what Henderson was so good at, was very innovative at, for for its time. And we don't see this kind of play at all anymore. It's completely been just you know
2: put in the in the dark corners of of strategy in, in favor of the, well, the three move, true outcomes. Move, well, let's move. Let's move to you know modern baseball now. And so you just mentioned so. You know, you start to look at players. I told a stat last week on the air, which you remember, which is that I think the 30th highest batting average right now in the Ameri- – like, it's like 270 or something. Right. I mean, batting 35 average is, or Right, about batting it. average yeah. has gone way down. Yep. Slugging percentage is way up. I mean, I think the league average is something like 430. 433.
1: Which, you, right. you tweeted at me or you, know, you even right. texted me during the middle of the Yankee game.
2: Yeah, which I tend <laughs> to do. Like, and then last week we even talked about the fact that like some great Hall of Famers don't even have a career war right. that's at that number. Uh, you slugging did, percentage. Sorry, slugging percentage. Slu- sorry, yeah, slugging percentage. Why do you think, I mean, does the analytics just tell our listeners? Because my 13-year-old son, Ben, was asking me, Dad, is that really the right way to construct a team? Should you have guys that strike out more, hit more home runs, lower batting average, you know, the Earl Weaver style of if, baseball? Get them on and hit a three-run homer. If, if.
1: It also comes with walks. Then I think it is. You got to get men on base. That happens through walks. They get driven in with the home runs. I think it's the most, you know, successful strategy for putting
2: up lots of runs on board. And it seems to be working. And, um, so is that why, for example, maybe Philly fans don't think he's done as great this year, but you look at a guy like Bryce Harper, the guy hits in the 30 home run range. Yep. The guy gets his on-base percentage is this year it's down it's 390 because yep. the guy walks a yep. lot or you look like an Aaron Judge. I mean Aaron Judge's on-base percentage is over 400 and if yep. the guy wasn't injured he would be a 40 home run guy with a 400 on-base percentage. So for you, that's cut kind of, and some So
1: actually, I brought up Bryce Harper several times, I think on the show, but Bryce Harper is probably 45th in, in sort of traditional ranking. Um, if you take into account the fact that he's played tough opposition, he's hit well in the clutch, he's done very well against the best pitchers in the league. You make those adjustments, he's a top 10 hitter.
2: It's interesting no that a lot of people don't make those adjustments. I wanted to do a, a sort of a semi-math exercise with you this morning, but it's a broader problem about you know how easy or hard is it to catch the leader. And so, of course, I'm referring to the Yankees right now. But I want I did a little bit of I'll call it envelope math, and I want you to basically either. Grade me as an A or grade me as an F, okay for the for the envelope math
1: binary binary uh, choice
2: here. Well, you, you can get give pass me a grade in between okay. <laughs> pass or fail. So the way I basically did the math I said the Yankees. Well, this part is easy. They have fifty six games left. They've played one hundred and six, and at the moment in the loss column, they have a nine game lead on the Rays. Okay, so I was starting to think to myself, what are the chances that they get caught by the Rays or the Red Sox? Because there are two teams, which we'll we'll get to in a second. So I was thinking to myself. Let's imagine the Yankees are... I, now, I have to take a hypothesis here. Let's imagine the Yankees play no better than 500. I thought that was what you would pick. No, okay. no. But, it makes but, sense. Okay. It's, it seems it's, about it's, the it's, it's, extra mem- okay. of, of possibility. You have okay. 500 ball. Okay. So that 28 means, and 28. All right. So that means they get to 95 wins. hmm So what are the chances, then, that the Rays win 35 games? And lego tw- 35 and 21. So they play 600 ball, let's say... And the Yankees play 500 balls. So I started to think about the math of this. I started to think, let's imagine the same hypothesis. Let's imagine the Rays are truly a 500 team. What are the chances they play over, sorry, not 600. I think they have to play about 630. So it turns out the standard error is about .065 with the number of games left. So they basically have to play two standard deviations. From what they're playing now. no. I made a simplistic assumption that they're truly a 500 team. Ah, also, okay. I so see. if I, but no. I knew you'd ask me yeah, that question. It's not a good based on what they're playing now. It's about 1.7 standard deviation. Okay, well
1: that still puts them in the five percent probability range. Okay, so I'm so helping you was, out. No, okay. I know, I know, I don't need that help, but thank you, <laughs> sure. thank you for offering it. <laughs> so
2: the math I did suggest. If, forget the Red Sox for a second. If the Yankees were to only play 500 and the Reds, and the Rays were to play, let's call it 625 ball, which would be about 1.7 standard deviations, that would give them about a 5% chance of catching the Yankees. Now, of course, you could argue that's pessimistic. Because why the Yankees would us, are going to play why would it, The sure. Yankees are going to play better. But then you could also say there's the Red Sox, and so, as you they know... They also can come in. How, how, so how do you... I'm saying, am I...
1: You're on the right track here. There's a couple of things that I would that I would object to. One is that I would say it's fat-tailed rather than normal-tailed. So, if 1.7 standard
2: deviations above the mean, and a normal distribution would be about five percent. So, tell our listeners here. Just I think everyone's familiar with the idea of a bell curve, which is the the normal distribution. Right. I'm making an assumption that, in some sense, the wins and the When percentage distribution follows approximately normal. When you, just be clear, when everyone says, if you, everyone can picture, we're on the radio here, but if everyone can picture a little normal distribution, Adi's saying is the tails, the right and the left sides are going down for normal, going down too fast. When Adi says fat tailed, he's saying there's more probability for extreme events. Why do you say, in a non technical way, why do you think they're fat tailed?
1: There's just two reasons. First of all, we have two sources of uncertainty. We have uncertainty in the game outcomes, and those are normal. So if we knew the actual distribution of the the actual probability that they win a game, that would be normally distributed. Then the actual win outcomes would be normal. But we don't, and so we have to convolve which means essentially take into account the uncertainty
2: and the knowledge of the actual true underlying strength of the teams. The real reason. So let me, why let me, let me just make sure. I want to take this step by step for our listeners here because this is an important statistics lesson. What Audi's talking about is when you add sources of heterogeneity, like you can't just assume. Like remember, everyone, I assume the Yankees are a five hundred team. Okay, if given that that's not true, I mean they could be better, could they be could worse. Five hundred, we could be 650. Yeah, we, well, we have know. to. Average over that distribution of Yankee possible strengths, and that gives us a fatter tail distribution. This is one of the standard – by the way, this is a sports statistics and business show. Any problem you face as you add uncertainty, you make the tails wider. Which means maybe one point standard, seven standard deviations. Let me translate it to business now. Is not a five percent chance. Maybe it's an eight percent chance because yeah, the tails and actually wider. It's because wider. the
1: standard error is is actually bigger than we think it is. So it's not one point seven standard deviations. It's probably closer to one point two standard deviations. And that's a big big. But then difference. there's another factor, which is the fact that teams change and they change in in sort of abrupt ways. So they could get an injury that hurts the downside, and they could get they can pull up a young talent or make a trade trade deadline in, in imminently today. Right? So uh, uh, this could this could be a shock to the team's underlying strength that 's not predicted by a normal normal distribution it's a it's an added jump value so that adds the third piece of uh, of uncertainty.
2: do you think most people i mean we don 't have a survey in front of us, but you know you could put matt could put it up on at w moneyball if oh, and, and again if you want to call in and talk about this conversation, please join us at one eight four four Wharton. that's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six do you think if you asked most people? just there are baseball fans let's say they follow the game of baseball and you ask them what are the odds that the Yankees will win the division right now I think most people would put a much higher number yeah, uh, than then, is actually true. Right, so
1: you're giving the number – let's just have a quick – you gave the number 5%. I think this is a good calculation. I'm going to give you an A-. minus. All right. All I'll right? take it. I, I'm going to double from that. Professor Weiner, by yeah, the way. Yeah. Let me just tell our <laughs> yes. fans out here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do-
2: I get to keep sitting in this chair here at Money Moneyball for that grade from Audie Weiner. That's yes,
1: right, right. I'm not known for my easy A's. That's no. for sure. Um, so the other thing, I would probably double it because of the extra variance that we talked about. So I would go about 10%. And I would,
2: but remember, uh, I just said the raise. What about oh, the Red no, Sox? I'm.
1: I'm uh, that's just the, the Rays. The Red Sox. The
2: Red Sox. Well, you add and it, it, so you can't just it, double it. That's
1: right because for the Red Sox to so essentially the Red Sox have to pass both the Rays and, and and catch the Yankees. So the question really is is it is it's much higher if we think of either the Rays or the Red Sox. Well, right. and, and I mo- would
2: argue that it's not much higher. You see, I just want to say this is great intuition that I I's given because what most people would say is you know usually when you say the word "or" in English language, a statistician means Addition, so you would add the two together. But of course, a they play each other. You know, they're not. It's not independent. As a matter of fact, the Rays and the Red Sox are playing each other right they're, they're now. They're mo- not exclusive. Only right. one,
1: only one team can win it. Right, and they're so. playing
2: each other right now. Right. As just an example, And right. they all play each other a lot. Uh, so this is, to me, this is just a fun calculation. As a matter of fact, you also bring up one of my favorite stats in any sport. So you may not remember this, but like I'll give you an example. In the National League right now, we have a logjam of teams fighting for wild card Uh, and let me give you an example so my other they're not my home team although they are the mets let's say you say well they're they're, wait let me finish so well let me say (laughs) well no no but this is the this is the point i want to bring up yeah so if you look right now they're six games back in the loss column against i think there's three teams each with 50 losses and they have 56 and you say well you know six games back with 50 to play 55 to play you just said the rays could catch the yankees but here's the difference there's seven teams, six or seven teams ahead of them. My favorite stat in baseball is, so what's the equivalent number of games back the Mets are if they were the only team that they had to pass? And it's a lot more than you lot more. think. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's I don't know double. how to do that, actually. I, no, no, no. But, it. well, this is another thing I wanted to bring up because I'm sitting here with a, uh, I'll call it a reformed probabilist. <laughs> I'm sure we could, simulate you could it, yeah. s- that was the point I was going to yeah. bring up. So could you tell our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball like, how simulation would – like, in some sense, we could just answer this question. I'm sure Fangraphs or any of these companies could answer this question. Well, Fangraphs,
1: Fangraphs does the simulation. They actually do exactly what you were prescribing, which was they, they put down essentially probability distributions on, on the team's strength – and then they run that. Just play the games. They just play the games, and they actually take into account strength of schedule. So they'll put down a, a probability distribution on team strength. I think they do this. Now this is, since nobody knows what's under their actual, in their engine underneath their hood, I believe they do have a parameter on team strength, and they and they randomly draw from that, and then they simulate the season. And I believe the Mets are still in in it as having a possibility of winning the wild card. It may not even be that small. It may be around 10%. And I think the way that wow. the, uh, you have to check that, but and the way that would happen is, if they have a extremely good remaining 56 games or whatever it is they will that they have to be in the 650 to 700 percent range going forward and that might give them that's where most of their probability is yeah well i
2: mean again they they do they have 56 games remaining right they are 51 and 55 if they win 35 36 of those games if they go 36 and 20 which yep. is you know it's not even two to one. If they play six fifty ball, they get to eighty seven, eighty eight wins. They're still, absolutely. I think they're about fifty percent at that yeah. point. Well, so absolutely, they have to
1: do a bit better than that. I think. So I think mostly the the way for the Mets, the path forward. And by the way, they, way, they
2: is, just got Marcus Stroman, which did. is a big deal it is a big deal but
1: but uh but it's interesting because they're really sufficiently far out of it for to wonder why they did that because he's essentially a rental right i mean he's got a year on his contract he's got a half a year this year not even a half a year a third of the year this year and another full year and it's just not it's not really i'm i'm not sure what the mets are doing but that's a separate separate issue so i actually think the mets have If they're going to be in it, they have to have an extraordinary second half. I mean, second, final, third, extraordinary. And that's where, and most of their probability is in their court. They do have five teams ahead of them, but they essentially have to be six games ahead of the second best team here. And that's, that's only going to happen if you have an amazing second half. Let me also bring up
2: something else which people forget. And this is just so our listeners out there, this is the reason why it's hard to pass so many teams. It's not that you can't beat them. You can beat them. But then none of them can have an extraordinarily That's last right. third, too, because right. they're ahead of you. Yeah. And, by the way, you have to, although it might be de minimis, you have to add the probability that the team behind you has an even better last third than you have last third. Right. So Does not have the better. Yeah. Right. Well, Does I don't not, think it's not coming it's from not the Marlins. That, no, it's not coming but from... But
1: anyway, this is, a, this is a great conversation, because it really is about exceedances in records. Um, and records. And uh, this is this is why hot dog eating contests are not... Empty of value, because I think they, we can talk about exceedances in those capacities. Talking about this is really interesting, but I did want to change the topic, uh, if you don't mind, No, no, no not at all. Um, I
2: just love exceedances, though, yeah, as you can Because I tell. will
1: talk about exceedances. There were two records this week. Um, in different sports, ones that we've never seen, we have we almost never talk about the record. One of the records was in the Tour de France. All
2: right, why don't you tell us? Well, first so, of all, just so, just so everybody knows, I think every, I hope so, but we're a sports statistics and business. No, not everybody may know what the Tour de France is exactly. What it's roughly, its format right. is. So, so the Tour de France is a bicycle race, and it's been around.
1: I think it's nearly a hundred years, if not more. Um, it's it's an extremely passionate sport. The the, the French are, and the Europeans in general are fanatics. Yeah, when I was about, seventeen about,
2: years old, and I was really into cycling, I was. On a cycling team in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually went on a bike tour, and we actually, I was in Paris for the final leg of the right. Tour de France. It was a, it was like, to me, it was almost like a Super Bowl. To me, as a 17 year old movie it, breaking away. Exactly. Well, was, there
1: was, you remember Greg LeBond, he was the American I, I, champion I, I, back I then. And um, what was, so it's an interesting race because it's, it's almost three weeks, maybe even longer and most of the legs are 110 120 miles but they that they're interspersed with these time trials and there's a there's a there it's an incredibly complex sport because teams are put together and they're and the most of the team is there in support of the lead rider and and frankly i think it's a, a sport ripe for in serious investment in analytics and for all i know there's some, there's some being done on the on the team side of things i don't think there's much publications centered around the strategies of of, of bike racing but the record that happened yeah, we, in, what was in, the, record. the is the youngest ever winner
2: so how 22 old?
1: 22 years old the winner of the tour de france which the men obviously men's race and the reason why i think is interesting because in so many other sports that's what I- <laughs> we have dominance by the older folks particularly in tennis, um, you know, we're seeing you're seeing longevity dominate in so many sports. But in, in this bike race, a 22 year old has won it, which is really remarkable because it's not a, it's an endurance competition, which is one of the attributes that doesn't go away as you get older, um, particularly uh, the thing that the typical advantage of a 22 year old is quickness. And that's not the kind of thing that usually wins the Tour de France. So there's an, some interesting exceedance. It was an interesting race because the French, two Frenchmen were actually vying towards the end, and uh, a Frenchman has not won in many, many, many years, which is, of course, I'm actually
2: surprised that that is, and I'm saying not doubting it, that that is the youngest person ever to win because there have been, let me tell you my thought, but it might be the wrong one, there have been, including, uh, you know, I forgot the guy's name that got disqualified, the U.S. guy for... Lance Armstrong. Lance Armstrong. Yeah. So there have been many, people who have won multiple tour de frances let's assume you're talking about the left tail there is a right tail by which you know a 40 year old's not winning the tour de france no so there's only a finite number of years and so i'm actually doing what i call inverse math i'm conditioned on the fact that i know there are people that have won four or five of them let's assume that you can't win past the age of making it up 31 32 but that's just an assumption okay then I'm going backwards in time. Yeah. And I know this is... I think
1: what you're doing is, is correct if you assume symmetry. And I think one of the functions of the of the race, if you think the way it's organized, you need to be the team leader in order to be the winner. And how does a 22-year-old have enough cred, if you will, even if they have the talent, to find themselves in
2: that position? Well, that's a... Di- so you're asking a great, great question, right. which is, this is what I... Since I've semi-followed the Tour de France, not as much this year, but I have in the past... If you're not designated the guy That's on right. your team, you're not supported by your team to win it, and therefore— what, You're not going so, to do so it. Actually, you bring up a great point, which is—this is why, by the way, we talk about this all the time—institutional knowledge of a sport does matter, because I think if you said the following—would you agree to the following? If we just had—whatever the number of riders is, 100, 150—if we just had 100, 150 independent riders, not on teams— Race for the last 116 years. Thanks, Matt, for how old the Tour de France is. And some of them are 22, some are 27, whatever. We probably would have had. I would argue
1: we would have had a 22 year. So
2: this is a really fascinating.
1: it's a fascinating. Yeah, it's a fascinating observation. Uh, I would actually call it Oliver's Rule. Who, I'm naming it after Dean Oliver, the the oh. basketball expert. He came to Moneyball Academy, and he. Do you he think there'll about,
2: ever be a day when you name something after me? <laughs> sure, I, we we can we can move Why it on. Why don't just That's, do it right now? But by right the now. way, the oldest winner, by the way, is thirty six. Okay,
1: but Oliver, uh, Dean Oliver, came in and he actually described um the five. He ordered five um, skills, attributes, qualities that one needs to possess in order to be successful in sports analytics. And number one in Oliver's rules was knowledge of the sport, which I thought was an interesting position above and beyond above knowledge anything. of statistics. Well, an interesting. Interesting. He put programming number two.
2: So the ability to collect to collect, collect data, data,
1: engineer it, put it together, interface with uh, with with um, APIs and other places that he put as number two, and number three was statistics. So I would put number one as statistics, well, but. And 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 then and I and I'm not sure where I would put let knowledge me, but, of the sport, but context is of course extremely well, important. Well,
2: so, let me say why I agree with you, but maybe not. Maybe for the same reason you are is not is that what I do is so. Let's take an example of you know the Yankees' chances of winning, etc. What I think I know how to do. I'm sure there are better people that can do better math than I. That's I'm, that's almost certainly true. What people that are trained in statistics can do is we know how to take what appears to be not an unanswerable, but a very difficult-to-answer amorphous problem and put what I'll call statistical structure on the problem. And so to me... Which is often is more mathematical than it is statistical. No, 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 yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. But my point was that the knowledge of uh, computing or something like that, or the knowledge of the sport... That's not going to help me do that. No. And so that's why I would put the ability to structure the problem in a statistical way. Even if I haven't done any calculation yet, I haven't right. calculated any data. In some sense, it's asking a question in a way that makes it structured and answerable.
1: We also are we're more generalist about sports than, than specific. And, but it is interesting. If you're going to be successful, We are, and we also, by the way, are not sports analysts for a team. We don't make our living as sports analysts. We're just... Just I don't know. What, I don't know what you do the other 166 <laughs> yeah, yeah. hours a week. You may be heading right, hey, right, right. right, out of here to but somewhere else. I, I wanted before we complete our first but you, hour. No,
2: no. But you had the other two. You I had have, the one, other one. One you have one more. So, one more.
1: So there was another uh, competition that just concluded: the World Championships of Swimming. And looking forward to Tokyo Olympics, which is coming up relatively soon.
2: Remarkable that this is yeah, happening I soon. Could, well, you know, sooner if than I asked is 2020 the winter or summer Olympics? I would have said, well, winter, we just had the summer. No, no it's, it's the, the summer. summer Olympics. It's the summer
1: Olympics. So uh, the, the sport that the United States cleans up and, and, and or, get, collects enormous numbers of medals is swimming. Absolutely. To, Shane's not here to, to, well, to, to I roll mean, just, his just eyes. Just to
2: remind everybody, Michael Phelps, of course, right. recently Katie Ledecky. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've had so Katie, numerous.
1: So Katie Ledecky did not have a good world championships. Apparently she was ill. And we expected an enormous amount for her. but I, I yeah, think but, she
2: still won a, a couple of she golds won, and uh, silvers, uh, but, but, but but not for her,
1: what, for her it, was, it wasn't what she was expecting. But we do have a new Michael Phelps. His name is Chris Dressel. And this guy won eight medals, six gold, including breaking at least one, if not two, two. of Michael Phelps' world records. So this is remarkable. We have another another one coming down the horizon. Another six to eight gold medals potentially at the at the uh, at the Olympics, and it's again sprinting.
2: Well, let me ask let me ask yeah, Caleb Dressel, Caleb Caleb, Dressel Caleb, 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 Caleb Dressel. Let me ask you a question: If I had asked you a year ago, two years ago, when Michael Phelps had his last great performance. And let's. How long way, would it be? That, that, that's exactly the question. Yeah. See, it's like we're we're an old married couple here. If I had asked you how long is it going to be till we're going to see someone as far off in the distribution as him, you certainly wouldn't have I said. Would never, right when he ends, the next one's. Coming. I would
1: never have said that. Never. So I- because this kind of dominance the, the the Phelps now Phelps dominated for something like sixteen years. Yeah, it was a very long period of time. I mean he came yeah, up yeah, from as a, a fifteen year old fifteen right? year old. dominated until he was in his early thirties. You know, early early mid- so Dressel's just out of College, I believe. I mean he's he just he was a gator. I mean he was a champion and in high school, juniors, he cleaned up an NCAA. And now he's he's now uh this is now he's a professional. I mean the, the World Cup the World Championships award prize money. He won over a hundred thousand dollars in prize money. He's great, right? So but I would never have thought he would have well, been in, in, in Phelps' shoes and we're talking about him in the same well, breath. In
2: the last you know, thirty seconds we have before we end our first quarter here on Wharton Moneyball. Do you think there's a possibility? Let me ask you. One. I would have guessed if you told me. Let's we're an analytics show. If you would ask me, would analytics make it more likely that someone would have greatness? I would say yes, but I would think it would lift the boat for a lot more yeah. people, and therefore the chances of getting an exceedance is going to go down over time. I would agree. So you would agree with that logic? I would agree.
1: Uh, I would would have thought that by now in swimming, we would have been approaching the wall that they hit in other sports, like track. Track is a sport where, I mean, when was the last time a major record was broken? Barely ever. Actually, there was one broken somewhat recently. um, We read about it in the paper. Uh, I forget which one it was. uh, Hurdles, maybe 400 hurdles in women. But even even when a record is broken, it's like by a smidgen, absolute, partial, fractions of a second. and, And it happens very rarely. Swimming records are go still go all the time. So, so why is that? Is there is there still analytical development? Is it technology? Is it? Are we still far away from the expert or perfection in swimming stroke? And and what other sports are, is is it comparable to? Um, well, I will say the United States has got a lot to worry about in the next because I look down the list of all the champions and world champions, and there's an American on top, Caleb Dressel, of course, but. It's all international I think that, I think, from then on. I think this
2: discussion about how <laughs> analytics affects records right. and affects, it certainly does the following. It certainly increases the pool of people that are potentially there. One of my favorite things about Wharton Moneyball is the guests we get to speak to. And in this case, it's a returning guest. So uh, we have Will Ahmed is joining us. Will is founder and CEO of Whoop, which has developed the next-generation wearable technology, which is great. I'm, I'm excited to catch up to Will about where things stand. Whoop work, works today with professional athletes across every major sport, every conference, uh, Olympians, U.S. military. Uh, they're also doing a lot of work with the NFL. And as I re- my recollection, since it's a family sport in my household, Will was also a squash player, as I remember, which may have been his initial Some
1: school in Cambridge. I so, yeah, wonder. well, he
2: and I share that school. But either way, uh, Will, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. <laughs>
0: Hey guys, thanks for having me on. Sure. Uh, First of all,
2: uh, how is everything? Why don't you tell us a little bit? I always like because you know maybe a lot of our listeners don't remember the last time you were on. Tell us a little bit about your background. What got you interested in some sense at the intersection of let's call it technology, data, and analytics?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Look, you know, our mission at Whoop is really to unlock human performance. So we believe every individual, whether it's an athlete or an executive, you name it, every individual has an inner potential that you can tap into if you can better understand their body and their behaviors. And I got into the space personally because I was always into sports and exercise. I was playing squash while I was at Harvard and um, I was fortunate to be the captain of the team there. And I just didn't know what I was doing in my body while I was training. I was someone who used to overtrain actually, which is where you go through this period of getting fitter and fitter and fitter and then all of a sudden you fall off a cliff. And for me, it was, it was getting very interested in, is there a way to prevent overtraining? Is there a way to prevent injury for athletes? Could you better predict how someone's going to perform based on the status of their body? And so I did a lot of physiology research while I was at Harvard. I ended up reading something like 500 medical papers, and I wrote a paper myself around how to continuously understand the human body. And that, uh, that research really led to founding whoop and 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 building the business and it's been a it's been a great journey uh, you know we work with a lot of really fascinating athletes and sports teams today and more broadly we, we now are working in the consumer market and uh, and it's exciting to work with consumers as well well let's let's continue let's
2: start first with the sports side kind of sure. what was your like you know, as you were starting whoop what was let's and then let's transition to today what was what's the competitive advantage is it the better technology, is it the better data capture, is it the better, you know, you guys ask the better questions, so you guys know how to, I mean, which is it? Or how do you think about well, it?
1: Well, actually, I wanted to jump in. This is Adi. I, I, I'm trying to recall, since you were on the show before, was, was your major market niche to figure out whether, wh- whether you should take the day off and how whether you should work hard or have a rest based on heart rate? And the, the, I'm trying to put this into... into the,
0: the core th- thing that whoop. Does is we measure recovery?
1: Recovery, and right? Exactly. We measure
0: a lot of things. Mm-hmm. We measure data across five sensors, fifty to a hundred times per second in a given day. That's a thousand to ten thousand times as much data as an Apple Watch or a Fitbit. So it gives you a sense for just how much data we're collecting on the human body. Now it's a very small sensor, and it, it can be worn conveniently within material or within our band. It doesn't have a screen on it. It's meant to collect a lot of this information passively. That said, the core things that we tell a user are around sleep and recovery and strain, okay? So you wake up every morning and you've got this recovery score from zero to 100%, red, yellow, green, that's telling you how prepared is your body to take on stress. And so we may tell you, hey, you know, your body's peaking, you should go take on a big workout. Or we may tell you, hey, actually your body's run down, today's a do- day to do less you know in some ways whoop is the first fitness product to tell you not to exercise okay because it's all about that balance between strain and recovery so then, over the course of the day we measure stress as you accumulate it that could be daily activity that could be exercise uh... and and what we see is is how much stress you're putting on your body at the end of the day we actually tell you okay based on the stress that's accumulated on your body this is how much sleep you need to recover for tomorrow right and then you go to bed and we give you feedback on your sleep and then the whole thing starts the next day again with a new recovery score so you can tell that the the product is is really designed to live a step ahead of you and i think that's where Whoop has probably had the biggest impact in both the professional and the consumer markets is this idea of living a step ahead of the individual.
2: Can you give us a sense at least like, you know, since I'm a, also a marketing professor, I'm the chair of Wharton's marketing department, who is your target segment when you started your business? Like who did you decide would most want this technology? So maybe it is as you're saying sports teams and now you're moving to the consumer market, but how did like who was where who did you think would ha- you'd have the greatest demand for when you first started the company?
0: Well, look, in 2015, I, I think two of our hun- first 100 users were LeBron James and Michael Phelps.
2: That's a good so start.
0: So Out of the gates, we started at the very tip of the pyramid, like the tippy-tippy tip of the pyramid, right? Um, now, over time, our market, I would say, has expanded a lot. And, and I would say the core thing today that holds all Whoop members together is it's a somewhat motivated population. And that includes fitness enthusiasts, that includes endurance competitors, runners, cyclists, swimmers, triathletes, marathoners. That includes serious athletes, CrossFitters, people who work out at the gym a lot. What we're also seeing, though, is people who are motivated in their daily lives. You know, lifestyle improvement is very popular right now. The concept of do I sleep enough, like sleep consciousness is very popular right now. Uh, People who are executives who travel a lot, you know, are on WHOOP. And they want to figure out how they can improve travel. Uh, people with very active jobs—cops, firemen, surgeons, doctors—you know, stressful jobs. So we're now seeing our audience really expanding beyond just this concept of of uh, fitness, but really around how can I be a better version of myself? How can I perform at a higher level? I don't know that whoop is necessarily for everyone today, but for someone who's motivated, for someone who wants to perform at a higher level the product is is spot on
2: so could you give us a sense you mentioned uh... well that you know you collect somewhere between whether it's a couple thousand to ten thousand measurements a day could you give us a sense you know in a you know since we're an analytics show but without getting giving away the secret sauce what does WHOOP do with all of that data? Do you have a big team of data scientists that are building predictive models using, let's say, machine learning that have a measured set of outcomes and you're trying to see what's predictive of those outcomes? Could you give us just a sense of what do you do once all this data comes in?
0: Well, I think the, the first thing to understand is that when you collect a lot of data, you have to hide a lot of data. You know, there's this sort of misconception in technology. If you collect all the data, you've got to show all of it to your users. And I want people who are listening to understand that if they actually use the product, it's very simple, the daily interaction that they have with it. But the reason that we're able to make, make it simple is that we've got very powerful algorithms that crunch all this data and give you just a few key scores to understand. Now, you can keep peeling back layers and layers and layers of our scores until eventually you can see all the raw data on Whoop, and that's quite a powerful experience. Now, I think your question was also alluding to what do we do in the aggregate, Right. Now, at the professional sports level, this is quite interesting because it's how I got into the, the space in the first place. I fundamentally believed about a decade ago that over time, with enough data, you'd be able to predict injuries and prevent them. You'd be able to predict performance and actually see what's going to happen before it unfolds. And I would say Whoop is really on the cusp of being able to demonstrate that that's true today. We have a very compelling, uh, risk injury, uh, injury, excuse me, injury uh, risk index that we're piloting with some of our professional teams that flags whether or not we think someone might be at risk for an injury today. We've got um, we've got all kinds of models that are actually predicting whether or not we think an individual uh, is going to have a, a big scoring night or a high field goal percentage or high free throw percentage because, again, a lot of what we see in this recovery score is uh, a predictor of how prepared your body is to perform. So, do you so guys can, actually? Can I'll you tell give you an us, example? Yeah, I'll please you go example, ahead. Right? You, you'll like this. So, um, we've got a, a point guard in the NBA on Whoop, right? This is just one very simple example, just to elude the point, right? When this individual has a high recovery on Whoop, okay, so uh, over sixty-seven percent recovery, uh, the individual is averaging twenty-two points per night, fifty-two percent field goal percentage, and one turnover per, per game, okay? When he has a red recovery. Okay, so his body is run down on Whoop. He's averaging 18 points per night, 35% field goal percentage, and eight turnovers. So if you look at those two people, if you look at those two stat lines, right, side-by-side, side, they literally look like two different athletes. You know, the first person I described with the green recovery, that's an NBA all-star max contract in the NBA. The, the second guy I described is someone who's coming off the bench on a mediocre team, Right? Same athlete, just different status of that person's body. And so for that individual, now so much of the focus is how do I have a high recovery every game? Because I know when I have a high recovery, I'm one of the best players in the NBA. So
1: do they allow you to see their data? Don't they keep this awfully private?
0: Well, in some cases, we work very closely with the athletes. In other cases, they, they want all the data um, for themselves, and they don't want to share any of it. And both of those are fine, by the way.
2: So, Will, let me ask you a question. So one of the things we think about in business all the time, let me just translate for some of our listeners. By the way, we're here on Wharton Moneyball, Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. We're talking to Will Ahmed, CEO and founder of Whoop, who's a company that works on next-generation wearable technology for optimizing human performance. So, well, one of the questions I had is how much can you affect someone's recovery scores? So, you know, we talk about this in my home field of marketing all the time. It's great to know that if you get people to like the product more, they buy it more. Great. But how do I get people to like the product more? So, have you shown that through, let's call it recommendations you make or sleep recommendations, dietary recommendations, training recommendations, that you can actually drive these scores enough so that there's a measurable difference in performance?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the most fundamental things that contributes to recovery is sleep. And we have a whole sleep coach that's designed to tell you how much sleep to get tonight and even when to go to bed and when to wake up. And the reality is after you've been on WHOOP for three months, Uh, on average, you're getting 41 minutes more sleep per night.
1: Because of the recommendations. Can I ask you a a real...
0: It it just makes you focused. In a lot of ways, you can only really manage what you measure. And this is a recurring theme for everything that we do at WHOOP. You can only manage what you measure. So if you're not measuring recovery, if you're not measuring sleep, there's really no way to improve it because you don't know what you're doing.
1: So so, uh, have you measured the difference in recovery scores for professional athletes between the times they're at home and times on the road?
0: We have. We actually did a very in-depth study with Major League Baseball. This was a couple years ago now. But we had, I think, over 250 Uh, major league baseball players both in the minors and the majors wearing whoop for six months straight. And what we were able to show is that the the traveling team, the team on the road, effectively, on average was getting an hour less sleep than the home team. Now, conventional wisdom says the home team has an advantage because they're playing in their uh, stadium or they have their fans behind them. Uh, It's a familiar uh, environment. Uh, Maybe it's just they get more sleep.
1: Yeah. No. Right. Listen, we've talked and to athletes so, on the road who said, "Hey, I'm yeah. in my room with my bed and my and my curtains and, and my, my you know my bathroom, and I just feel good. I have no problem resting." Yeah. So, Will, let me ask you, if you were well, here, to- I'll
0: give you a fun counterexample. We actually had um, we had a team reach out to us because their uh, their uh, any this is in the NHL. Their goalie was having a uh, a world class road performance for the season, and actually struggling at home. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, they, the, the team happened to be on WHOOP. And what did we find? Uh, we found that this individual was sleeping really poorly at home and great on the road. Now, sometimes it doesn't take rocket science. What do you think changed in this guy's life? He <laughs> newborn. Yep. <laughs> right? Newborn, couldn't sleep at home, and as a result was playing badly at home. Road, sleeping great, played great. You know, so sometimes these things are a little it, bit more obvious, so, but but that's you know that's what's interesting, right? If you're a team, you got to think about that, you got to manage that.
2: So, well, let me ask you: Has anyone, you know, as you know, one of the big things sabermetricians, statisticians, et cetera, love to do is measure. I'll just use your example: home field advantage. Has anyone ever maybe gone to you and said, "Well, we'd love to use Whoop's data"? We'd like to relook at home field advantage, but now we're going to condition on the amount of sleep someone has, and we actually find out that it eliminates two thirds of the home field advantage. Like what we've always thought is, well, I know the ballpark. No, it's none of that stuff. Has anyone come to you for that data? Because if not, let me just say we have a lot of students here at the Wharton School that work with Professor, uh, work with Adi Weiner, my co host here, who would love that kind of data and would love to publish an article that says, no, it's not the home field, it's the home sleep.
0: Look, I. First of all, I think that's probably true. And uh and second of all, we are doing some work in that area. We have specific teams that, uh, you know, are just a step ahead on this stuff and they're they're already monitoring sleep of all their players and 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 by the way, the players are bought in. I think this is where there's some misconceptions out there. You know, there's this idea that uh oh if the athletes are collecting this data it's gonna be used against them. This is a question I hear a lot and it's total bs because the reality is these guys actually look like professional athletes through whoop as much as they look like professional athletes on the field they recover really fast they, they have the ability to take on unbelievable amounts of strain Now, the sleep thing is so fundamental i think we're going to look back on professional athletes not measuring sleep the same way we look back on major league baseball players smoking in the dugout it's just going to be pure insanity. It's not going to make any sense to people how these people weren't monitoring their sleep to figure out how they're going to perform. And you can already see the athletes who have queued into this well before even monitoring um, has existed. I mean, Whoop is, is a, a very new company in a lot of ways, and we're the most accurate sleep wearable. But, you know, there's other athletes, and, and you can rattle them off just top of mind folks like LeBron James and Tom Brady, and, and you know, you're reading about more and more of them who were, have been able able to extend their careers clearly because they've gotten super dialed on everything related to sleep and recovery and the idea that the the whole population of professional athletes wouldn't be measuring uh, sleep is I think you know I think it 's crazy and and the reality is it has a huge huge influence not just on game performance but on the longevity of these of these individuals careers and The more that they invest in sleep, the better it is for everyone so you well, know, yeah, imagine imagine your favorite athlete, your favorite star, had one or two more years in their prime, and then you know apply that across the whole league, like how much more exciting would the league be? How much better would that be for fans? The whole thing, I think, it makes a lot of sense. So back to your question, absolutely, and, and would be happy to do something with you guys around it. Well,
1: that would be, that well, would be exciting. That would be particularly exciting for us, but have you done anything at all with the academic community on sleep and athletic performance?
0: You know, WHOOP is involved in probably about 20 different research studies right now, some of which we can say more or less about uh... some of which are quite confidential we've also done probably fifteen to twenty white papers with schools on Mm -hmm. just ncaa performance so uh... we've been able to show now across about ten or twelve different sports a correlation between how recovered an individual is and their performance so uh... You know, NCAA time trials for track and field is, mm-hmm. one of them, is the most obvious. Like, if you have a higher recovery on whoop and you got more slow-wave sleep, you're more, you're more likely to have run a faster time relative to your baseline. So like, let Things me, like that. Just, and, and, you know, it's that, that is Moneyball 2.0, right? It's not just how talented someone is. It's the status of their body on any given day that's going to pr- uh, predict performance.
2: So, well, I'm a an effect size guy. So you've you've studied lots of things, even starting with your days at Harvard. If you had to think about, so I could be, let's say I'm a professional athlete. I could optimize my sleep. I could optimize my diet. I could optimize my training. Maybe there's other factors. Which of them do you think, it sounds like to me you maybe you think sleep, which of them do you think has the largest effect size across all of them?
0: I think the biggest thing is uh, the, the lowest hanging fruit is sleep. Yeah, because, I, yeah. uh, you know, I'm, I'm still amazed to this day. We, we, we'll start working with athletes and um, professional athletes. I mean, making $10, $20 million per year, 22 years old, and instead of going to bed at 10 or 11, going to bed at you know, 1 or 2 or 3 a.m. because they're playing video games.
1: And, and then waking and, up early.
0: And and then, yeah, by the way, and then the team has a 6 a.m. shoot-around despite the fact that the game's at 8 p.m., right, like, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, like you know, it, it, yeah, it, doesn't, I mean, it just doesn't make any
1: sense. You're not arguing the training isn't important, but they're just very far evolved in those things, so it's very hard to make a significant contribution. Yeah, I would,
0: contribution, say, I would right? say one of the core, core, like, the core thesis I had in starting Whoop is that there's an overemphasis or over-worry with exercise and a complete under-emphasis on recovery. And that, that story's really played out. You know, if you read... Uh, the, the next ESPN article is probably not going to be about some uh, athletes' insane training habits. It's going to be something a little kooky about how they're taking CBD oil to sleep better or how, you know, they've got some hyperbaric chamber, you know, installed before Wimbledon, right? It's like that, that's the new story for athletes. And I think it, the reason it's the story is because it, it actually has the most progress.
2: So, well, maybe in the last 30 seconds we have with you, um, If we're sitting here five years from now talking to you about Whoop, what are you guys working on?
0: Well, look, we're going to keep owning human performance. I think it's a growing category and one that we're becoming the market leaders in. Human performance is only going to get more and more important, and it's going to touch, I think, every aspect of society. A lot of these things start with sports and then they gravitate to other areas of society. It was really only 30 years ago that professional athletes started lifting weights. And now you can't go to a hotel in America that doesn't have a gym. Right? That story was told through pro sports. And in a lot of ways, it's how Whoop thinks about the world. We started with the best athletes in the world. We proved something around sleep and recovery. And now we're bringing that to everyday individuals who want to perform at a higher level. So it's very exciting, and uh, it's just a good time to be in this space.
2: Well, well. Now, for the second time, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. We've been talking to Will Ahmed. Will is founder and CEO of Whoop, which has developed next-generation wearable technology for optimizing human performance. And the part I'm extremely excited about, Will, is that you're moving it to maybe us professors should be thinking yeah,
1: about how to get on our game. You're going to hear maybe from me and some of my collaborators in the in the sleep center here at the University of Pennsylvania. We'd like to reach out.
0: So, Will, thank you. Yeah, th- absolutely. We'd love to have you guys on Whoop. And, uh, and anyone listening can learn more about the product at Whoop.com. That's just W-H-O-O-P dot com. And uh, and it's an exciting time. Well, Will, thank
2: you again for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. So this has been the first half of the show, which means we have a half to go. Adi and I are looking to talk more sports, statistics, and business. So stay with us and join us after the break.
0: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
2: Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner. Some combination of the two of us, Cade Massey and Shane Jensen, are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, here on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. So, Adi, in the next half hour... Um, you know, I think my love affair with football uh, almost as matches my love affair with baseball, but they're certainly neck and neck, and we're very fortunate to have Paul Pazlozny on the phone. Paul is a former Pro Bowl linebacker who played 11 seasons in the NFL. He played college football for an institution I follow well because my wife is a Penn State graduate. A consensus twice All-American, played uh, chosen by the Buffalo Bills in the 2007 draft played for the Jacksonville Jaguars, all-time tackle tackles leader, played middle linebacker, which we're going to talk about the role that analytics plays in the defense of football. So, Paul, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner.
3: Thanks for having me on this uh, this morning, guys. I appreciate it.
2: Well, Paul, not only did I read some of your football accomplishments, but I should also say to uh, a lot of our fans here on Wharton Moneyball, not only did you attend a Wharton School Executive Education program, but you're currently also an MBA student at at Carnegie Mellon at the Tepper School of Business. So you've clearly made a transition, I'll call it, from your football career to what's going to be upcoming as a big business career.
3: Well, I'll be honest with you. I'm still in, very much in the process of just trying to figure things out. You know, you loved, I loved football so much, and it was such an enormous part of my life. But now it's... Uh, it's kind of the the opportunity to figure out what's what my my true passion in life is, is going to be, and, and I'm hoping that um, having the opportunity to attend a business school like that will, will help me figure out my path.
1: Are you are you just starting, or are you finished a year?
3: August twenty two is will be our official start date. Ah, so right just now
1: beginning, floor. so uh, all mm-hmm. kinds of the, I know the prelims because we're going through it right here at Wharton.
2: So could you tell us? Let's just start with your college days at Penn State, where obviously you were, well, let's even start since I don't know, I know a lot about your college career, but don't know much about your high school career. Were you always highly recruited? Like, was it obvious coming out of high school that you were one of the top recruits in football? And how did that process take place?
3: Uh, No, I was not not a top recruit. I I had the opportunity to play on a, a very good high school football team um and I'm from western Pennsylvania originally, so uh you know you know how it is there and the same same thing in, in the eastern side of the state football is very prominent, but I had an opportunity to play on a good team and um I would say i was uh, you know with the with the rankings of players i was a I was a three star prospect so not not a five star not an elite player by any means and um had the opportunity to go to Penn state and once I got a scholarship offer from them. Uh, that that pretty much that, that was it. I mean, the linebacker you the history, the heritage, everything that um, that that we all know is important with with Penn State football. Uh, I fell in love with the place, and that's where I decided to go.
2: So, how does someone go? We we you know we're an analytics show, and matter of fact, my colleague here, Audie Weiner, has studied kind of star ratings in football. How does someone go from a three star recruit? to being a consensus all-American twice and you know winning all the linebacker awards in college how, how did that trend? no no i mean that's i'm just stating i know you're a modest person it's actually, i'm just stating it's actually, the data yeah, well, so how I, did that happen
3: Audie may be able to give you a better better description of, a, of that but i just think um, you know coming out of high school i i would say i was I, I i wasn't the um, I didn't necessarily fit the, the prototype. You know, when you think of a of a, of a college linebacker, you want them to be six three, two thirty five, and 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 um, you know, and have all these physical attributes. When I, well, I was probably a little bit on the on the lighter side, yeah. And um, uh, so, and just didn't have the the national name recognition that, that a lot of the more prominent or highly ranked players had. But um, when I had the opportunity to get to Penn State, I. We had outstanding coaching, we played for one of the best linebacker coaches in, in college football, and um, you know, was on, had an opportunity to be on, on, a, on a great team with really, really good teammates, and I, I, just, I guess I was just able to develop my skills there um, a little bit more and, and really grow into... Did you get a lot
1: bigger? I mean, when you say grow, did you also get taller and, and heavier while you were in college? Probably substantially.
3: It, uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it, well, I know when I first got to school, I weighed, I weighed 216 pounds. And uh, that realized quickly that that wasn't gonna that that wasn't gonna cut it. And then by, by the time I, my senior year, I was probably I probably weighed two thirty. Um, you know, pl- played most of the season in between that two twenty five and, and two thirty. So definitely was able to, to put on muscle mass once I was a part of a college strength and conditioning program.
1: So just I'll give you some some information about uh, there's about twenty five to thirty five stars about. Um, Couple hundred four stars, and there are thousands of three stars. So, among the pool of three stars, you actually get more top talent coming out of the three than you do out of the five okay. and the four, because there's so much uncertainty in, in, uh, between high school and the professionals. There really is an enormous opportunity to change and become someone else. And it's interesting to hear that you were able to do that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's so much there's, there's so much time for for growth and improvement and learning the game. And some people just develop obviously faster than others. I know we played against. I go back to high school. I think about kids that were so highly regarded, and it seemed like they were already at eighteen years old. They were already mature. You know, they were they were grown and they were almost maxed out. Whereas right. other kids, um, you know, were able to surpass them later on in, in their college careers.
2: Could you talk uh, specifically about the role? Because we talk a lot about training here on Wharton Moneyball. We also talk a lot about coaching. How important is that? Like you know, cons- you know. Is it just pure natural talent, or how much do all of these other factors matter?
3: I think that the other factors, especially as you, as you progress in your career from, the, from college to the NFL, those are more important than anything. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are going to be some, some unbelievable, God-given uh, elite athletes out there where you just say, you know what, there's just not too many humans like these people, and, and, they, will, and they will have great success. But for the vast majority, especially of the NFL, it's because guys are extremely dedicated to training, getting their body into the, into the absolute best peak physical conditioning possible. And then from a coaching standpoint, if you have elite coaching and you, and you learn great techniques and you play with great technique and you have a great understanding from a for instance, from a middle linebacker's perspective, if you know how you're going to be attacked, offensively, and you know what's coming, and you know your run-pass tendencies because you have an outstanding coach who's, who's able to communicate that to you clearly and consistently, that's what makes all the difference in the long run.
2: So for those of us that, you know, I played football, but not at the level, obviously, that you played football, could you tell us what it means to be the quarterback of the defense? Like, could you tell us what is the role of the middle linebacker In the NFL today, and are you literally trying to assess based on the formation, based on down and distance, based obviously on the information your coaches have been giving you, are you literally trying to to assess this is the play they're likely to run and here are the options that they're doing and you're calling it out for your team? Just give us some sense of, like, I'll call it literally all the analytics you're going through as you're sitting there, you know, at the line of scrimmage.
3: Absolutely, and that's and I have to say, you know, we could we could talk about this for a long time. The importance of analytics has has increased drastically throughout my I'm thinking about throughout my my ten plus years playing from 2007 to when I finished. Um, the amount of information that we had available to us, and the amount of, of brilliant people that went to outstanding schools like like Wharton and MIT that just seems to they just had a passion for ball and they and they and they applied those analytical skills to football. So the information that we have available to us as players was immense. Um, and as a going back to as as a, as a middle linebacker, your number one job is to sure. communicate all all everything that needs to be communicated across the entire defense. That information flows to the middle linebacker. He needs to be able to communicate to the D line, to to his other linebackers and the secondary, the defensive calls, uh, the offensive formation, any t- any types of checks. Or adjustments that need to be made um, when the offense is, is breaking the huddle and when they're shifting motioning, all of that information flows to the middle linebacker, and it's his job to communicate that to the entire defense so that everybody is, uh, you know, ultimately working with with a single call when the, when the ball snaps.
2: Could you give us an example? of how you mentioned matter of fact it was it, it's almost like you're staring at the sheet in front of me. Could you give us an example of how analytics has changed, let's say the way you played middle linebacker when you came out of college versus the way it was in two thousand eighteen. Like what has changed in those ten years from an analytics perspective and how it changed, let's call it your job as middle linebacker.
3: I think in the in the beginning we always had percentages based off of, of run pass tendencies in um in the personnel that's on the field from the offensive side. We say okay if they have one tight end and two running backs and two wide receivers, and it's first and ten. It was seventy percent run, thirty percent pass. So we we had things like that memorized, especially ones ones that were obvious. Um, but as as that information started to get more advanced, um, it became it became so specific that it was okay now. When it's third and three to six, there's and, and we're playing the Houston Texans. There's an 80 percent chance the quarterback is going to target DeAndre Hopkins, and so it, it, not only did we, did we have the the run pass tendencies, but then also, well, who, where is the ball going to go? You know, who is who is going to be the primary target, or who who is who is the number one threat for us to eliminate? Um, all of that information became so specific, and it, it we could we could drill down into. Areas on the field, you know, were we, were we in the red zone, or were, or were we at the fifty-yard line? The per, the personnel that that the offense had on the field, where they lined up, um, you know, where where their elite players or, the, or their highly targeted players lined up on the field. All of that information was available to us, and as players, it was just dependent upon us to say, okay, what can I what can I truly memorize and transfer to game day? Because different guys use different information. What what a cornerback would know and memorize would be very different than what a D lineman or a defensive end or a middle linebacker would, would, um, would try to know and analyze as well.
2: So it it sounds to me, by the way, we're talking about Paul Poslozny. Paul's a former Pro Bowl linebacker who played 11 seasons in the NFL. He also played college football for Penn, for Penn State, where you're in consensus All-Americans twice. So here we're here on Wharton Moneyball. If you want to join the conversation, uh, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 844 942 So, Paul, I wanted to ask you, there was a recent article, literally, that just came out, because everything you're describing to me says... Wow, that middle linebacker better be one smart dude because of all the information you have to be able to not only absorb – but also to communicate in real time. There was a recent article that just came out about someone um, who didn't want to score so well on the wonderlick test because he was afraid he would scare teams off because of this perceived negative correlation between, wow, if Paul Poslowski is that smart, he he's can't... He's not going to really he, yeah, be he,
1: fully invested in football. Right. That the real, they read too much. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, so how
2: did... I mean, How do you? how do you perceive all of that? Like, how important was just, I'll call it, Intelligence, ability to absorb material into what you did. I think the the
3: the better you were able to absorb all the information that we were given, the faster you were able to play on Sunday. Now, that was the thing. It's it, so on Sunday when that ball is snapped, you have all that in- information stored. When you're able to access it quickly and make split second decisions, where it's not even it's not there there's not there, there needs to get to the point where there's no thinking involved on the field. It is all. You have this, you have information memorized and it just becomes immediate reaction as soon as things happen. The faster you can do that, the faster you can process all that, the faster you play. Because everybody is, obviously in the NFL, everybody is, are, are, all the players are outstanding athletes. But it's, it's who can, who can make that initial step quicker, who can start heading in the right direction faster. I mean, that has, that has an enormous impact. I mean, you look at you know, some of the best teams. I mean, you look at the New England Patriots. What do they look for? Guys that are tough, guys that are smart, and guys that are team players. I mean, so that, that, is, that, is, that is it right there. I mean, that, that's the formula for if you, can, if you understand the game and you can access all of that information and understand it, and, you're, and obviously football being the game of it is, you need to have a certain amount of mental toughness and physical toughness if you can combine those two, that that's what the ultimate football player is.
2: Well, let me ask you a question. One of the, matter of fact, your old team, the Jaguars, um, they're now listed as, I'm sure you obviously continue to follow football, and I'm sure you continue to follow the Jaguars. They're listed as one of the teams that's likely to make a big leap in 2019. What do you see about the Jaguars, or how do you think, when you were coming into a season, Let's. how did you think about, Hey, we seem to be on the right trajectory. Can you, as a player, tell this? Can you get a sense of how good you're going to be? How How do you think about that?
3: I think you. when you're able to look around and see that, okay, we have elite athletes who are obviously who love the game and are completely dedicated to the team environment, and not concerned with uh, well, this. I, I need to get X amount of receptions, or I'm only interested in, in getting X amount of tackles per year. When when guys are completely devoted. So the, the pure aspect of our job here is to win football games for the Jacksonville Jaguars. And that's it. That, that is, that is the ultimate object, objective. When you're able to see that and communicate that and have guys that, that are, are completely sold on that, you say, okay, now we have, you know, we have the right stuff. We have the right stuff to have success. Obviously then there's a lot that goes into the course of a season, staying healthy and, and all those other factors. But if you have guys that you know, that's, um, are completely dedicated to the cause, and that obviously, and when you're extremely solid at very, very specific positions, if you if you know if you can say, our defensive line is really, really strong this year, and, or or our offensive line is, is very, very solid. I mean, it's still with all the with all the, the passing and yardage and touchdowns. If you can't win up front, you're you're going to have a long year. So when you when you analyze that from the beginning of the season, you say, how how are we up front on the offensive and defensive line, that still has an enormous impact on the course of the season.
2: Would you have been – you obviously played for a number of different head coaches. Would you have been successful – let me ask you a question. This is the classic question everybody likes to ask. Do you build the scheme around the players, or do the players fit into the scheme? Would you have been as successful in the NFL as you were – In any scheme, or did your coaches build the scheme around, this is our quarterback of the defense, we're going to build our scheme around Paul Poslosny, as opposed to, I've got a scheme, we're going to jam him into it?
3: I I can tell you from experience that uh, I know that um, I was able to fit in, because of of my style of play, I was able to fit into very specific defensive schemes. And one that I, that I was not able to fit into was the, a, a traditional, uh, we, I would call it a traditional 3-4 defense, which we played my, my fourth year in Buffalo. We had a coaching change there and um, the group that they brought in wanted to, wanted to be a 3-4 defense. We had been the exact opposite. We had been a 4-3 for many, many years leading up to that point. So we tried to make that transition with taking personnel that were drafted and selected specifically for four-three, transfer them over to a different style of defense, a three-four, and um, it was it was very challenging. It was okay. Very challenging for me personally and for the team because you are uh, everybody has a specific skill set, and, and you kind of and you're able to fit in um, to specific schemes. Now some guys are so elite um, and, and they're so diverse that they can do different things, but uh, I would say the vast majority of the guys. Are, are very they will excel in in a very specific scheme
1: can you explain to uh someone who's a little bit more ignorant about football than eric what the difference is between four three and three four in terms of the d- defense against the run the pass what are the skills that is one better for for the, the pass and one better for the run or is it what kinds of athletes uh, succeed in one and not the other
3: sure. so I'll, I'll go back to what i'm uh, most comfortable with that that's a four three so when we say that when i say four three it just means that there's four yeah defensive linemen that all have their hand on the ground um you normally have two bigger interior d linemen and then two defensive ends that that are that are more that still have size but are also very athletic they can rush the passer as well behind those four d linemen are three linebackers a middle linebacker and two outside linebackers that's what that's what um the, the type of defense that that i had found the most success in because uh playing with a with a outside linebacker on, on on both side of me with four D linemen. Um you know and that's it is equally good against a run in the past. That those types of defenses that have four threes, their their linebackers are generally they can be a little bit lighter. Um they're generally faster than 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 a three than a three four scheme. Um it's 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 your old when you when you think about the history of football, that's that's your old um Tony Dungy and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the old Indianapolis Colts, um, the Seattle Seahawks, you know, with, with, their, with the speed that they have at, at linebacker. Those are the types of defenses that run, that run a run. And I imagine,
2: three, Paul, that as you being a middle linebacker, and you even mentioned, you know, even maybe in your pro weight, you're in the 230 range, you had to be able to run sideline to sideline, and that highlighted and uh, accentuated your skill set.
3: There, there was definitely an emphasis on speed. You had to you had to be able to run and, and you had to be able to move and play in space.
2: Just so we know, how uh, fast no. was your forty time? Like how fast were you?
3: I was a I was a four six flat guy. So not not a you know when you when you think about a, a, a prototype linebacker, you say, well yeah, you want him to run four five five, right? I was uh, and that wasn't me. I was I was I was a four six zero. So um, you know not blazing speed, but. Fast enough to get the job done.
1: So, what do you think about the transition, at least in the analytics community, and I think also on the field, towards more and more passing? And there's a lot of being written about it in the in the uh, sort of the sports analytics community that we're not even close to the optimal uh, distribution. Still more passing, more passing, more passing, and that the value of running backs are essentially uh, market. Neutral or low in other words a team doesn't need a, a superstar running back to be successful in but, fact they don 't want them by the way Adi
2: before Paul answers this question I can say of all questions ever asked on Morton Moneyball we have an all pro linebacker that's about yeah. to tell us about the in <laughs> no no this is fascinating to me I want want to hear, I hear <laughs> how someone that was the quarterback of the defense and did it at a all pro level Thinks about the the analytics emphasis on increased passing are all running backs exchangeable? So, Paul, sorry to interrupt. And I want is, to point out to our listeners: this is the magic question this that is what we've everybody's been is
1: for. arguing about right now, at least in the analytics community. So, let's hear it.
3: <laughs> it's it's a very interesting topic because you you can attack it from a lot of different angles. Well, I know elite running backs have the ability to to truly change and dominate a game. If you're if you're on a, if you're playing defense and you're not and you are not able. To stop a running back, if you're not able to stop the run, you have no chance. I mean, I, and I, you have no chance of success. I should say. Now, with the increased emphasis on passing, I mean, you can understand that they're spreading the field, having you know, opportunity for for more guys to have the ball in their hands, um, and you can understand that. But even with all with with the increased passing and the percentages going up. I can always tell you that goal number one in, in every week leading into a game was you have to be able to stop the the, the run. If you don't, um, and a team is able to run the ball at will and chew up the, the time clock and control time of possession and, and dominate the game in that fashion, your 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 chances of winning decrease drastically.
2: How quickly? Um, let me just ask you just to interrupt, but I want you to keep going. How quickly, uh, you know, I've. How do you know, I always claim I can watch one series in any football game from either team, and I can tell who's dominating the line of scrimmage. But I don't
1: make that claim by the I, way. By I myself, I said I make the claim, and Paul's <laughs> about
2: to tell me that maybe in-game adjustments make what I'm saying false. How quickly as a defensive player can you say, "Wow, this is going to be a long day"? Whether it's their scheme, their offensive linemen, we we're, you know we underestimated their ability to just push us off the line, or is that something that it's not that obvious?
3: I mean, I say th- I would say within within two drives. So within the, within the opportunity of being on the field twice against an, an opposing offense, either that or within the first 15 plays. That's when you get a feel for okay, how how is an offense trying to attack you? Um, how well are our guys playing up front? How strong is, the, is their offensive line compared to what we saw or what we what we felt we saw on film? Um, that gives you an idea of of how the rest of the game. I would say, so two series or the first 15 plays. That gives you an idea of how the rest of the game is going to proceed.
2: All right, so you talked about stopping the run. What about the increase in passing? Like, for example, as a defensive player, would you have been happy if a team, not just on your physical wear and tear, but like if a team said, we're going to pass 80% of the time and run 20%?
3: Would I have been happy? I mean, I think the the thing is, what that boils down to is, okay, how much pressure are we getting on the quarterback? If we can, if they can, if if our D line can put pressure on the quarterback and force him to make poor decisions or, or decisions faster than what he wants to make, then then please throw the ball all day because that that becomes opportunities for the defense. Now, if a if a um, opposing offense has a quarterback with pinpoint accuracy and and we can't we can't get home to him, you know we can't uh, we can't put any pressure on him and he's able to sit back there and get the ball out exactly where he wants to, then it's going to be a challenging day for the defense because just with the amount of space on the field and with the, the rules and how physical you can be with receivers and tight ends, or I should say with, with, the, with the lack of physicality with, with receivers and tight ends, it's more, it's, more, it's definitely more challenging for a defense to be able to um, stop an offense when they're throwing the ball over and over and over again, especially when you are not able to get pressure on the quarterback.
1: So Zeke Elliott is sitting in Mexico right now, unsigned, by the Cowboys. What's the story? What do you think of this? Should, should, I mean, is it worth it? I mean, are the, the Cowboys are trying to play the analytics game. Eh, we can replace you. Um, what do you think?
3: I mean, I think he's an outstanding running back. And that's, that was, to me, that was always, that, that was always a, a high risk game to play from a player's perspective. Because if you want, I mean, you love football and you want to be with your teammates and you want to be working hard to improve and, and, and be a part of the team and have the opportunity to win. And I then me personally, I always felt like, well, then you had to be there. You had to be there with your guys, but and then the other, then the other side of that trade is, well, he needs, this is his opportunity to maximize his income and set up his family for life. So it's a, it's a very, very challenging game. I know, I know personally I was, I, I always lean towards, I want to be, I want to be with the team and I want to get on the field and play ball. Um, but that's a it's a it's a difficult spot. I wish I had the proper answer. I'd be able to help out a lot of guys yeah <laughs> make sure. make this decision a, a lot easier but it is it is definitely a, a very challenging situation.
2: well, I want to move on to another topic, but it's not unrelated to Zeke in some sense because of running backs lives let's call it let's just talk about you and then i'll talk more generally. When were you the best football player you are? That you could be. Because let me ask you a question. Because you came into the league, let's assume, at age roughly 22, 23. You retired 11 years later. So, you know, there's always... Range peak? Yeah, exactly. The lore is, well, I if I could have been the 22-year-old Paul Puzlosny with the 33-year-old wisdom, I'd have been even better, but you can't be that. When do you think, during your 11-year All-Pro career, you were the best football player you were? And then it's, it's, it's right in the middle of, I mean, I should say it's
3: when you, it's when you're at that point in your career where it's still, you, you get the best of both worlds, where you're, you're 27, 28, 29, even, even 30 now with, with the, with the way that we're able to, the players are able to take care of their bodies now. Um, because that's when you have the, the knowledge of the game, the, the over, the on, the on field experience. Um, but then you physically, you everything is still, Feeling great and you're operating at a high level. It's when It's when you get later on in your career. Yeah, when you when mentally you're sharper than ever. However, it takes you. It takes you a lot longer to recover from game day. It takes you a lot more to feel great on game day. Um, that's when you when you start to say, okay, I know I'm not. I know I don't feel as good as I did when I was 27, 26. Um, so it's it's definitely that that fine line when you're when you're 27, 28, 29 when you're when you have a great understanding of the defense and everything that's required of you, and, you, and physically, you still, feel, you still feel like Superman.
2: Could you tell us, so if you were to, let's imagine instead of retiring, you had chosen to continue playing. I'm just trying to see how big an age curve has its effect. Let's assume you were, we don't have to assume, you were one of the top middle linebackers in the league at age 27 to 29 could a 34 year old version of you be an average player or does age really take even more than average away like you would be a bottom 25 how, percent how could that like just to give our I, I call it an effect size how big an effect does age have sure you're not as good as the 28 year old version of you but you're still really good or you're still kind of good or not particularly good
3: I think that in this and this was the, this was the ultimate decision that I had to make because I was that was what 33. 33- um, and then after 11 years, and I said, you know what? I, I know physically, I'm not able to play at the at the level that I that I want to. Um, so it was time to call it because the when you when you know that you're able to that you're able to do certain things and you're able to cover guys and move well and feel great on on Sunday and and there were, there was no limitations physically. Then when you get to the point where with increased age now things aren't aren't don't feel as right, you know. You're you're tighter than, than traditionally you were before, and when you when you have that sense that I I, if I can I may miss a play or I'm, I might not be able to do this as well as I did before, um, that's when that's when you have to make a decision because like you said, you can go from an outstanding football player to uh, a a very average, to a very average starter, which for some people that's it's just it's not good enough. You know what I mean? When you see yourself decline like that or or regress right. on the field that's just that's not something you'd rather stop the, um, you'd rather stop playing or, at a high level
1: you'd rather yeah. do the Seinfeld I'd rather to retire when I'm still more or less on top rather than have to play a few more years when you're just average even below average and teams could use you but it's such a big drop for yourself that you just don't want to be in that position
2: exactly so could you tell us and maybe in the last few minutes we have together what will you be able to take from your football career now you're about to start, I think you said August 22nd, at Carnegie Mellon. Congratulations, of course. Obviously one of the top business schools in the world. What are you going to take from your professional football career to the business world, to being a student again? What, what are the kind of transferable skills, if you'd like?
3: Mm-hmm. I think the, the, what the biggest thing when you talk about being a part of a team and understanding that um, it's, it's the ultimate objectives of, of the team uh, need to be your personal objectives of, uh, as well and and collaborating with other people to get a job done and being able to communicate well and understand that everybody has different perspectives different experiences and being empathetic to that and understanding how all of us, all of us can come together and have great success as a as an organization as a business as a firm um being able to apply that what I what I learned through football um, in, into the business world. I mean, hopefully that'll, that'll be a, a great advantage. And then the other aspect of that is, you know, when you, when you think about, um, you know, what you need to succeed in, in business and it's, uh, understanding trends, understanding data and being able to apply it and make decisions quickly, uh, especially with un, uncertain information, right? Um, but then being able to make decisions and being able to make right decisions. I think through football, you learn a, a lot of that about transferring information, from a classroom setting um, into a, a, a real-world environment where the, the consequences are high, where the stakes are high, um, I mean, hopefully that'll have, Hopefully, I'll be able to transfer that into, into a, a business
2: environment as well. Let me ask you one last question. Um, one of the things that we talk about a lot, and I'd love to hear both your thoughts and what you just said about the business world, maybe think about it, about your time on, at, on the NFL field. When you make the right decision but the outcome is wrong like in other words all the data suggests this was the play they're going to run this is how we stopped that play and it just didn't work out can you just talk about the what I'll call you can't focus on the outcome you got to focus on the process could you just tell us a little bit about how you had you know what they call the amnesia that a football player has to have like we did it right i know we didn't get the right outcome but we did it right how, how do you think about that i
3: mean that happens all the time and and like you said it's it's all you know you, as a, as a football player, you go back to well. It's it's a it's a one play mentality. So if, if something like a situation like that comes up um, and things don't turn out your way, you say okay, that, that's fine. When we get back to the sideline, we'll learn from it. We'll, we'll communicate about it and, and learn from it. But right now, we have to deal with with what is right in front of us and understand that um, whatever happened in the the play before no longer matters. What, what matters right now is, is is getting getting back lined up, communicating reading our keys, playing as fast as we can, and, un- and understanding that our, our immediate responsibility is, is to take care of the threat right now. Whatever happened before, we'll learn from it and, and, under- and understand it when we have the opportunity. But um, to not let that affect your performance moving forward is key.
2: Well, Paul, again, as I said, um, first being married to a Penn Stater – uh, being able to talk to you, hearing about both your college career, transition to the pros, about your use of analytics, about your now transitioning to the business world. Um, it's truly been an honor talking to you, and I'd like to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Oh, thanks for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. And we wish you the best yes. of luck at Carnegie Mellon. Good luck at CMU. Thank thank you. Yeah, Yeah, good luck. Thank you very much. Yeah, so we've been talking to Paul Puzlesny. Uh Paul's a former Pro Bowl linebacker, played amazingly at that position 11 seasons in the NFL, played football at Penn State, and now he's transitioning to the business world, which, again, Adi, allowed us to talk about my three favorite yes, topics. Yes, they are. Sports, sports statistics and, statistics and business. business. All right. So <laughs> thank you, Paul. So while we're in the football mode, uh, and you had mentioned a little bit to Paul Poslosny about Zeke Elliott, um, I wanted to bring him up a little bit because, you know, during the break between... Last the third quarter, and now we had a little bit of discussion here in the office. And one of the things I'd love to have your thoughts about, Adi, is – and you brought this up during the break – was that there's two dimensions one could think about about a running back like Zeke. And um, so could you bring up those two dimensions (laughs) and why, from an analytics perspective, they're very,
1: very different. They're very different. So what's happening is is, uh, the two dimensions are – you can describe it roughly as either running backs are a very important part of an offensive scheme, but it really doesn't matter who you have playing that role. That's on one. That's one important By the way. Co- let me just um,
2: just for just to translate. So, from let's imagine. So, I'll just translate for our listeners here on one Morton Moneyball. Not that it's not clear, but I want to put it in a mathy way. What Audie's talking about is imagine a regression model where you're trying to predict, let's call it wins or performance. And let's imagine you have running back as one of the X variables, the quality of the running back. What Adi's talking about is the slope, the coefficient of running back is high, right. or is it not? So right. that's what I'll call so, a slope That's effect. right. So
1: it's, we actually got a straight up answer from Paul Poslowski. He basically said running is important and teams need to have a, okay, a, a so running I, game. Okay, but I'm just
2: under translitics where statistics right. show that's saying the slope the is slope high. The slope is high
1: and, and that if a team that can run is going to be more successful now than the other. Now let's talk about the other dimension. Run. And, uh, okay, so essentially, so the, so, it's. So, so then if you believe running is important, then there's a second question which is does it matter who's carrying actually carrying the ball? And there seems to be a a general sentiment in the in the NFL that running is important but it doesn't really matter so much who actually is the running back, and therefore someone like Zeke Elliott doesn't deserve a massive contract because he's just not that, he's, he plays an important role, but it's a role that could be played by a variety of different running backs. And so
2: the word that Adi used in their break, which is what we would call exchangeable. That's right. So another way to think about it is, there's this is, by the way, this is true, we talk about this in marketing all the time, which is there's what we call the beta effect, is it important? And then there's what we call the X effect, which is, How much variation is there in X depending on what you pick? And And so in this case, it could be that beta is high, meaning running backs are important, but you could put anybody in there. And you know what? You're right. Mm -hmm. They're not going to average 4.5 like Zeke. They're going to average 4.8. Two
1: and and, okay. and they will be just as useful in the very high uh, leverage situations and that 's one of the knocks on Zeke is that he isn 't really that much different in those very important line you know imagine fourth and one when the th- fourth down or third down and you 're in the goal line this is when you need a running back who can do certain things it 's not clear that there's really any different differentiability or what we call uh, they, they seem to be somewhat exchangeable whether that 's true or not is still something to be settled by the analysis but that seems to be the position that is being taken by a lot in the NFL now. I'm going to segue to the other side of it, and this is what I was p- pressing, you know, Paul on, on our conversation. Is that the analysts? So the so the you know the the uh, the, the the knowledgeable the knowledgeable sports people who who write about this in, on on ESPN and are on 538 seem to be telling us. That running itself is not important, or what you call the beta. The importance of this, the slope for running backs are, is small, and the more we pass, the better you are. And, and that doesn't even matter that they're exchangeable. They're not needed. And that seems to be something that the NFL has not embraced. Even though they pass
2: more and more, they have not bra- embraced the idea that running backs are just not useful at all. Well, that's why I think we've had some of you know these controversial picks, if you'd like, like when the Giants picked Saquon Barkley yeah. with the second pick in the draft. Yeah. It's not that people don't think that Saquon Barkley it's, is great. He's great at a position that just doesn't have that much leverage. That's right, and that it's crazy
1: that. so when they, when they took that pick, the, the my, my best line was they took that pick to ensure that they would have the first pick the next year too.
2: Well, and, and, it's wor- and it's worked a little bit. And and course- course- but let me ask you another question. You've mentioned one of the things you talk about a lot here in Wharton Moneyball is maybe we're measuring it the wrong way. And let me give you an example. Let me give you a data point, which thanks to our producer, Matt Datz, we have in front of you. So obviously, Zeke Elliott has been the running back for the Cowboys. He plays with Dak Prescott, who's the quarterback of the Cowboys. When Zeke is on the field... Dak Prescott has 48 touchdowns and 15 interceptions. Okay, Eddie? 48 touchdowns. Without him on the field, he has 19 touchdowns and 10 interceptions. So he goes from over a 3-to-1 ratio to what that would be an all-pro, 48 touchdowns and 15 interceptions, to 19 touchdowns and 10 interceptions puts him as a very average quarterback. So with and without. So maybe we're not thinking of Zeke Elliott the right way or the running backs the right way. Maybe we should be thinking about them as same as in soccer. It's not about the number of goals Messi scores. It's about the amount of space he creates. It's not just the amount of goals Wayne Gretzky scores. He creates it. The threat of Zeke Elliott makes it so that – let's go back to what Paul described. The linebackers have to play closer to the line of scrimmage. There's more ability to run the football, uh, throw the football. And now, because of the threat of the run, it's easier to pass. I mean, I just want to say – counter-argued to me why maybe it's just a measurement issue. Maybe we're just not measuring it the right way, the value of a running back. Uh,
1: this is this is why uh, football is ultra com- complicated, and this is why you get people like the athletic. There's this article 10 Win, just published talking about you don't need to run. Uh, Josh Hermsmeyer, who we've had on the show a Many bunch, times. he really is running with this pass, 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 and not doing it enough. And I think the an- the analysts seem to suggest that that's the right thing. But you're pointing out as the game is complex, and you see, and the subtleties of the game are are far from being understood. And you're using the analogy to Messi in, in soccer, the space measurement. We may not be measuring the value of the running back, the beta on the on the running back, appropriately. And that, that's straight up, you know, within, without kind of statistic well, with, you could even with Dak go, Prescott. You could even go one level
2: deeper, yeah. which is if you knew the other team wasn't going to run the ball, let's say you knew it. Let's just take that as a given for a second. Right. Well, first of all, your whole personnel package would be different. That's right. And for example, a 250-pound linebacker might be very valuable in trying to stop a running back, but the Paul Poslozny, who's 225, who's really fast but lighter maybe he's less valuable. So, you know, in some sense, the whole personnel would change and so I think we're going to get to a place where we're going to be able to measure the value of a running back. I'm not sure we're there yet. This is just my own opinion. I think
1: this is the kind of thing that uh, tracking data will be able to illuminate much better. But just, you know, pointing this out, I mean, so the answer that we got from Paul was it's about creating pressure on the quarterback. When you know that they're passing, you cannot let the quarterback have seconds tick by.
2: Every second
1: matters. Every tenth of a second matters. And also we pointed out to the value of the quarterback and this is what of course makes great quarterbacks different from the average quarterback is they're able to take that one second less time and do more with it than a quarterback who has more time to find the open receiver to throw downfield who doesn't need the pinpoint accuracy because you've given the the receivers more time to separate
2: so while we're still on football i wanted to transition to i'll call it at the team level which is, you know, one of the big things that came out this week in football was, of course, now we've got the predictions and the, the over-unders for, uh you know, for the NFL season. So why don't we start with the, uh you know, the, fir- the season that's upcoming right now. I think what shocked many of us, Adi, and I'd love your thoughts about this, is um, the team that was predicted to have the biggest jump in wins is the New York Jets. Ooh, my Jets! They won four. <laughs> they won four games last year, as you know. Well, yeah, I know well. Vegas yes, over under is seven and a half.
1: So, could you, could you know, us? a chunk of that? I think is regression of the mean.
2: So, just again, explain to our fans exactly right. what so, that means. So,
1: the regression the mean, the regression effect means when you're very extreme in two correlated variables. Then uh, given that in the first occurrence, you're very extreme, you expect to be extreme on the next one, but not as extreme. There's movement towards the, the middle. So
2: just to translate, which that's a great description, just to translate, you're right. The Jets were a four-win team, but maybe their true strength was a six-win team. A couple footballs didn't go their way. That's they, right. they went to four, but their true strength is six. They won't get that negative Random bad luck or they this can, year, but it's not like not, likely, not right. as likely, so, and so they'll regress upwards. Yeah, so
1: when you see that the worst team in the league is 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 highly likely to be one of the worst teams in terms of true ability. But not as bad. But also lucky, unlucky, the unluckiest team, or a combination thereof. And that's what we do in, in statistical analysis, is try to separate those two re- explanations for why you were the worst team. And one is because you were bad, and the other was you were unlucky. And it is some mixture of them. So in the second season, that to follow the subsequent season, you expect to see luck to return to the average. And so that means that the team that did worse is expected to do better than they did. And the worse off you were the previous year, the more regression to the mean you expect to get. As
2: a matter of fact, the table we have sitting in front of us is entirely consistent with that effect. Absolutely. We see it here which teams are expected to have the greatest difference the teams that were the worst the jets the jaguars the cardinals the raiders the buccaneers and then you have you know the giants and then you know it's basically they just ranked order the teams That's from the right. bottom and then those i mean I'm there's gonna, nothing i'm
1: going to throw this out and Cade's not here to to uh, to to jump back but in the last two seasons i've run a regression to the mean forecast for every uh, for the NFL season and it does as well as the professional forecast, so you're just do. saying the
2: only factor you've brought in
1: is previous wins, and try. That's to sp- it. And actually, I've done a little bit better by looking not at wins, but by points scored and points allowed, which is a little bit less. Affected by the those you know the luck factor, so it's a little bit a better predictor. When I use that, what do we call the Pythagorean? And there's a various system of turning in points allowed and points scored into a winning percentage. So I use the Pythagorean win percentage as a method of predicting next year's wins, yep. and it is as competitive as any of the professional forecasts out there. Of course, the best forecast that I got is the average of the Pythagorean win forecast. And say Massey Peabody. That tends
2: to well, be that. And one. as you know, these types of um, systems that do model averaging or average that's different right. sources, they do even better. They
1: do better. And, and so I have to say, when I looked back at what I prefor- what I forecast using the regression of the mean strategy for last year, the big misses were like the Rams, who o- over the off season everybody knew they were going to do much better because of acquisitions. Mo- that, your model's not. That model not doesn't model. do that at all. So you know, you're already tying one hand behind your back when you use a purely regression based forecast but it's remarkable because it doesn't it doesn't shy away from pulling the the top teams from previous seasons down and moving the worst teams from la- previous seasons back up it does that wholeheartedly and most professional forecasters are resistant to that.
2: Well, it's one of the things we talk about a lot, which is right now, if we looked at the forecast, we don't have the whole table, but if we looked at them, it would probably predict no team above 11 wins. But we know there's going to be a team. We just don't know which one it's going to be. And that's why you get much less dispersion in your forecast. Exactly. As opposed to the actual outcome. That's right.
1: And we saw that in our over-unders at the beginning of the baseball season when I was asked with great with some hardest over-under we had. Whether the Yankees or the Red Sox would hit 96 wins. And the forecast for any team, I believe that one of those two teams was going to do it, but you I couldn't know tell which you which. One. And I would, for any given team, I would say no, but I would say that one of those two was going to do it. Fortunately, it looks well, like bef- the
2: Yankees. Well, before we get to our over unders, um, it's not, a, I just wanted to make sure it wasn't on it. As we're sitting here right now, How confident do you the Yankees get to 96 wins?
1: Oh, I would be at least at 80 to 90% confident of 96 wins for the Yankees.
2: Okay, because even at 500 baseball, and they've been a 650 team, they're at 95, 96 So I'm highly
1: confident. I'm not ridiculously confident. I'm not 95%, but I'm at least 80% confident that they will will make 96. I I don't think the Red Sox will do it, so I'm going to win one and lose the other, which is exactly what I forecasted to start with.
2: But that wasn't an over under. No. But speaking of that, um, one of the fun things about our show is the over under segment. And since I'm sitting in the host here today, will be run by our host Adi Weiner.
0: It's Warden Moneyballs over under.
1: All right, Adi, we'll turn the over under to you. Oh, there's some there's some goodies. Um, let's start with
2: a football one. Okay. Eight and a half. Cowboys wins. Over under. Wow. You know, it's a really interesting division in football because I could make an argument that the Eagles are the best team in that division. I don't think it's hard to make. I could make an argument that the Cowboys are the best team in that division. The Redskins aren't terrible, and they've been improving somewhat. And, of course, you know, the Giants are in that division. And, you know, there could be they some. They have a new
1: quarterback. Who are they going to use? I don't know.
2: That, that we don't know. Um, I'm going to go. Wow, that's a really, really it's tough, a tough one. Thing, Zach Drapkin's about to write this down, which one I'm going to pick. I'm going to go over. I think the Cowboys win nine or ten games this year, so I'm going to go over. Do we know
1: what Vegas has on them? Do we have any uh, clue or what the, what the forecasters? All
2: right. Vegas is nine, and they won ten games last year. Yeah, so I actually think it's a great over it's under... It's right eight,
1: there on the right. I'm also, I'm going to agree and go over. I think that... Um, I think Vegas has its, its act together. I think shrinking to re- regressing to the mean from
2: 10 to, to 8.5 or 9 is about the right amount. I think the other thing is that while we think the Giants might be somewhat better, maybe, we think the Redskins may be somewhat better, they do get to play those teams four times. That's right. So that already helps you. Helps them out. Like if, with let's schedule. say they go 3 1. But they one have to and, play the
1: Eagles at least twice, no, no, no. right? I so, know that. Yeah. But
2: I'm saying if they go 3 and 1, Let's talk about exceedances for a second. If they go 3-1 and one against the Redskins and the Giants, then let's call it a 500 team would only go 2-2. Two and two. Well, they're already plus one win, which could get them right, above right. 8.5 immediately. So I'm going over. You're going,
1: okay. So let's go to one that we talked about earlier, and, it's, and I get to go first because one of the things we do is we alternate. I have a swimming one. So 5.5 goals for Caleb Dressel in the 2020 games. He just won six at the World's. Um, and that's, uh, that's not eight, eight. Phelps hit maxed at eight. Eight golds in one, in one, in one Olympic and So And do we basically know how many events like or this? more?
2: Is he the same as Phelps? Like, he he's going swim do, in he'll, every he'll, event. He'll, he'll, he'll swim eight. Basically,
1: he'll pick up probably at least, probably four relays. Um, maybe not four, but at least, yeah, maybe four relays. And that's, and the United States men's tends to dominate those. So what do you think? So actually, I start. So I'm going to go over. I'm, 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 I believe this kid is for real. And I'm going for six golds for Caleb Dressel.
2: So, the only thing that's stopping me, there's a couple things that are base stopping me. Pace stop well, right rates, there. Yeah. Base, <laughs> base rates, one injuries, two. Mm. Not knowing exactly, it isn't a contact sport
1: though. Just get. no, no, I know, but
2: you, can, I know it's not a contact <laughs> sport. But swimming, you can, uh, you can actually have injuries. Five and a half seems extraordinarily high to me, so I'll take the under. The under. I, this is generally what I am confronted with, the sport that I don't get or I don't know.
1: Base rates is the way to go. And in fact, this is what the expert literature, the stuff that Phil Tecklock lem- has, has written extensively about. But let me also about.
2: say why I'm going to take the under. It's what I'll call death by a thousand knives. And what I mean by that is there may be someone – this is what was mm-hmm. so great about Michael Phelps. There may be somebody that the only event they swim is the 100-meter butterfly. And now Caleb Dressel
1: – He just has the world record in it, but that's
2: okay. No, was it that one, the 100-meter <laughs> yeah, butterfly? The line, I just yeah. happened to pick <laughs> it. Okay, well, I knew that was Phelps' specialty. But yeah. all I'm commenting on is he has to be great in that and every other stroke and focus on them, right. someone else. So that's why I'm going under. Only because of the base uh, rate it's, of it's, a it's, specialist uh, it's a great... can beat the greatest – in I would agree. their specialty. All right. Under. So we
1: do we have I think we have time for another one more. So I wanted to to move to the Mets. The Mets are the team that just traded for Stroman but doesn't seem to know where they're going. Uh will they have 79.5 Wins well, that's the over under seventy nine point five. Will they have eighty wins or more? Essentially, will they just touch five hundred or, or or just about, or will they be sub five hundred? We're actually seventy nine point five is the one we have, and it's your
2: turn. Well, this is a challenging one, but not uh-huh, because no, no. But let me say why it's challenging. Maybe I'm thinking about this the wrong way. Let's imagine a week from now, the Mets just have a bad week, and let's imagine they're fifty two and sixty one. Well, then this season they go one and six. The week, the season's entirely over. Then what they do is they start bringing up prospects, and mm-hmm. they don't play the A team. They play the Bradlow A minus team. The Bradlow minus. A- <laughs> right there right, we go. Okay. So for that reason, I'm going to go under. Okay, 79 and a half. Well, that's
1: right. Well, one would argue that either they're competitive and they're going to do if way they stay more than 79. They'll be way more. I do believe. Or that. they're just going to just essentially not really tank, but. But really, start bringing prospects start up and, and start thinking about twenty twenty. Lo- I think a lot of this will be determined in the next the next few weeks. We'll see if to see if they make a trade. I mean, Syndergaard is in the block. Maybe they can sell him for a lot of value at this point. But to, prospects, to, to, pro- prospects. But for, in, a, in exchange for a future, um, I'm going to go under for the Mets as well. And that's also partly because you know they're the Mets. There we go. <laughs> we have time for one more. One more. For one, more? one more. Let's do one more over under. All right. So let's do uh, let's do. Um, well, let's do Eagles. Let's do Eagles. It's early. It's, and maybe maybe our, 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 um, our, our colleagues will have a chance to weigh in. 9.5 Eagles wins or more. Or that's the over-under. So yeah. it's 10 or more versus 9 or fewer.
2: Well, I just picked the Cowboys over 8.5. So, you know, there are only so many wins to go around. But I think the Eagles will go over. I, I have a good feeling about the Eagles this year. I think they're going to play well. Um, I'm taking the over.
1: You know what? I'm going to agree with you. I'm also going for, I believe, one of two of them will make it, and I, one, one or the other will almost certainly make it, and this is a good, you know, low variance pick. Um, of course, it does lower, probably lowers my expectation, but I'm going for the low variance. I'm going over.
2: Well, let me just, just the last 10 seconds we have on this, what Adi is saying is, by picking both the Eagles and the Cowboys, the likelihood of winning both is going down, but also the probability of losing both is going down, That's right, so it's low
1: variance, because they're in the same division, so that's why.
2: Well, Adi, I want to thank you for being with us for the last two hours. This has been Eric Bradlow, here, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, along with my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner. I'd like to thank our producer, Matt Datz. I'd like to thank our associate producer and sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. I'd like to thank our research assistant, Zach Drapkin, and of course, this has been two hours of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, In the next week, enjoy your sports, enjoy your statistics. We will see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball.
3: For more
1: insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.